All right, Genesis 3, verse 8 to 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we come as finite people who are weak and grow tired and have many distractions. And Lord, we come on a, your day, the Lord's day, the day when Christ rose from the dead and defeated death and sin and bound Satan, Lord. And Lord, we come in victory on your day to learn from your word that we may grow in a greater knowledge of who you are and your salvation plan, that we may grow in a greater delight, a greater satisfaction, a greater love for you, that by your word we may be sanctified and on the process to being brought into glory with you forever and ever. We thank you that, Lord, in the midst of our sanctification, we are seen as Christ is seen, spotless, without blemish, white as snow. And, Lord, as we come to this passage, one of great tragedy, yet in many ways fortunate that we may know you at a deeper level, a level of character of grace and mercy, your consistent pursuit of a rebellious people. So Lord, we hold it in tension that although there is great tragedy as mankind fell from your presence, you pursued them until your people would be in your presence again. And Lord, today we stand as your church, your very temple, which will be forever your dwelling place. We with you will see your face as Adam saw your face in the garden. Yet, Lord, the new garden, the new heavens, the new earth will be even more glorious than the first. As your people will be a redeemed people, washed clean by Christ. So, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, empower us to receive your word. Give us understanding, knowledge, wisdom. And help me, Lord, to articulate it in a way that is able to comprehend, be able, be able to comprehend it. And let it be for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in the mid, uh, midst of Genesis 3, and we have four sermons on Genesis 3 alone 
in that I think it is a significant area which shapes our world today. We need to have a good understanding of what took place in Genesis 3, as that really does shape the rest of the scriptures and the world we live in. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 our purpose to dwell with God, to have dominion over all of creation, to be fruitful and multiply, to protect it and keep or keep it and work it, which we spoke about being the extending of God's dwelling place and the protection of God's dwelling place, which is still the mandate today. Yet Genesis 3 brings in a new nature for man, uh, a dead nature of man. Now, when the scriptures talk about being dead, it's not the physical death that we, we, we know will come for us all, but the spiritual state of our pursuit of God. We cannot know God without the spirit of God. We cannot engage with God or understand his holiness or our de depravity without him first revealing to us the truth. So we see through Genesis 3 that death came into the world and death came by one man. So Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sins. We're looking at a chain reaction from Adam to his son Cain and Abel to his other son Seth. And it says in chapter 5 of Genesis that Adam had a son in his own likeness, and that was Seth. And there follows on Seth having sons in his likeness, and it continues that now the likeness of man, the death in them, the sin that's in them, is going to run throughout all generations. The image of God still is there, but it is a marred mirror and we no longer reflect him in any sort of resemblance apart from, sorry, I just completely lost my thought, train of thought, but we don't, we don't reflect God in the way we should anymore because now Adam reigns in us. The sin of Adam reigns in us. Now, the root of sin comes from our heart. And we need to be clear about this understanding because as we will see later on, if sin doesn't come from the heart, we can blame all our external circumstances. The serpent wasn't responsible for Eve's sin and Eve isn't responsible for Adam's sin. It comes from the heart. Jesus, when talking about sin, makes it very, very clear that sin comes from the heart. We are defiled by what comes out of us, not what happens around us. So our desires that linger underneath are where all our actions come from. Now, what this tends to lead to is a hatred of desire. And I think for many churches around maybe... Oh, many churches, even in our day and age, will get to a place of legalism where desire is something we should hate. We should hate our natural desires for pleasure. We should hate our desires for joy. We should hate our desire for anything whatsoever. But that's contrary to Genesis 1 and 2, where God created man and woman and created them with five senses in a beautiful garden that was to be enjoyed and above all, to enjoy himself, God. 
And it's contrary to the rest of Scripture, which talks over and over again about delighting in the Lord, uh, seeking pleasure in the Lord and being satisfied in in Him. So what we need to be careful of when we're looking at desires is that not all desire is bad. Our desires are tainted due to the sin of Adam and the fact that we are born in the likeness of Adam now, but our desires just need regenerating. They need sanctifying by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about our desires, let us not throw out desire altogether and become people who don't want to desire anything, but rather question where those desires come from. Are they resemblance of Adam or are they resemblance of Christ? I love what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. It's a long quote, so bear with me about desire. He says, with irresistible power, desires seize mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, or love of fame and power, or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature remains. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust that arouses envelops the mind and will of man in a deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves is what the flesh desires really sin in this case. Is it not permitted to me? Yes, except except of me, expect of me. Now here in my particular situation to appease desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the will and word of God. So Bonhoeffer speaking about the desire, the evil desire that takes place in our heart reveals that question that Eve put, that the serpent put in Eve's mind last week in our passage. Is it really sin? Is it really sin? And, God, and of course, Satan doesn't deceive us in teaching us to hate God outwardly, but a forgetfulness of the fullness of God, the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the joy that is in God. And that is what we saw last week in the deception of the serpent over Eve as he enticed her by questioning God's goodness, questioning his character, and therefore bringing his word into question. Question. And of course, our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned from God to their own desires, to the creature, to define what is good and evil for themselves, which they do not have and we do not have the authority to do so. So now we get into the response from God, and this goes on to the end of chapter 3 where we unpack the curses that come, but we're not quite at the curses. We're looking at the tragedy of the broken relationship between God and man. And we see some famous lines in there where Adam blames Eve. It's a very famous place. But what we're seeing and what under, uh, uh, undergoes all the other things that are taking place is a broken relationship 
between walking with God to no longer walking with God. And that is where the blame comes from. It's where the lack of repentance, the lack of confession, it's where the fear and uh, shame takes place because they are no longer in close communion with God. So let's unpack this as we normally do, working through verses at a time. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, there's several theological significant things that take place here that we should understand. But first of all, we must see how the, the, the narrator, Moses, goes back to the title Lord God. This is the first instance, I believe, of God's grace to Adam and Eve and to mankind as a whole. Right now, mankind has fractured the covenant relationship with their Lord God. They have no rights to call him Yahweh. Yahweh was a personal covenant-keeping name, and the serpent pulls that away so that Eve starts to use the same language as him takes away the personal name of God, takes away the name that God introduces himself to his creation, Adam and Eve. But here, in God's grace, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pens down the Lord God was walking in the garden. We see God's invitation that he is going to pursue man. This is our first taste that God is going to pursue. He is not giving up on mankind, when we look through all the uh, destruction that God will bring in his wrath, the flood, the destruction of Egypt, the destruction of uh, Israel eventually, and Jerusalem, and then Assyria and Babylon, and all the nations that follow, we can turn to the very fact that God says in his covenant-keeping name that he is the Lord God. He will pursue. He is faithful to his covenant. So when we read this chapter and the narrator, Moses, will always use the Lord God in a beautiful way of saying our God is a God who is faithful in the midst of our rebellion. Our God is a God who will not forget his promises as we see all the way throughout the scriptures. Although Eve turned to use the common name of God and followed in the patterns of the serpent, we see that God is still the Lord God. So much so that God was so passionate about his dwelling place in the Garden of Eden. We see that the Eden, the garden, was a temple of God. He walked there, which is reference to the place which references later on in Scripture to the tabernacle. God walked in the tabernacle, and then again later he walked in the temple, which speaks of his dwelling place on earth. God so much so cares about his covenant and wants to make sure he upholds it that he created a way by his grace to dwell with sinful people. The whole design of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system is not legalism or burdens on Israel, but his grace to them. 
For without the tabernacle and the holy of holies behind the curtain and the sacrificial system, there was no means for sinful men and women to be in the presence of God. But because he is their Lord God, their covenant-keeping God, he creates and designs a way for them to be in his presence, although buried by the curtain, although separate by the sacrifices. He makes a way so that the holy can dwell with the unholy. And he gives a way in Christ, of course, for us to be there unbarried, unhindered, because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. So as Moses writes, we've got to remember that he's writing to uh, he's writing in the wilderness, probably in the tabernacle at that time, and he is thinking about God's grace as the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, who although we have rebelled, although we have turned from him, he is faithful and makes a way to fulfill his purpose, which was always to have a people for himself. And he does this through the tabernacle, later the temple, and the sacrificial, sim- uh, the s- sacrificial system, and then later in Christ, which is the fulfillment of the law. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This phrase here should strike both wonder and sorrow. Wonder because this was the normal. This was the normal. God walked in the garden every day with Adam and Eve. This was his dwelling place And they would commune with him in a physical form of some sort. Whether it is Christ, whether it was Christ in his form, whether it was the triune God in his complete form, what we have here is a people untainted by sin dwelling with God in his presence. It would have been incredible. Absolutely incredible to think that this was the normal for Adam and Eve to hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. To at the end of a day's work, which was full of joy and prosperity because there was no curse upon the land, to then commune with God about his creation, about his glory, about his majesty or his holiness. Yet it's sorrow at the same time, because it tells us that Adam and Eve hid from his presence. What was once normal is now about to become abnormal. In fact, impossible without Christ. We see very clearly it says, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. It was glorious The garden was glorious and it was there to be enjoyed, but now it is foreign. The presence of God is foreign to them, something they are afraid of. And now they take the abnormal of hiding from God and make that normal. And they hide amongst the creation that God gave them to enjoy. The very trees that God says, go forth and enjoy. It was a buffet of of food. These trees that were there for them to delight in and taste and experience and draw their hearts to wonder about this magnificent creator, they now hide among the creation. They make fig leaves to cover themselves. They hide behind the trees from the very normal experience of walking with their holy God. 
their creator. And this is the nature of man that follows. The man, whether knowingly or unknowingly, like Jonah, who runs from the presence of God into a ship, onto a ship, and out to sea, thinking he could outrun God, knowingly trying to escape him, or unknowingly, like Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh, who call themselves God. Both hide from the living God. Both run from him. Both try to hide in the midst of the creation that God created for them to enjoy and be drawn to him. Like Adam and Eve, our first parents, we too hide ourselves. And we repurpose the creation of God as clothing for us or repurpose the trees as a shelter from God. And the greatest tragedy of the sin in Genesis 3 is that the relationship between God and man is broken and by our own strength is impossible for us to fix it. Impossible. Wonder and sorrow as we think about the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day and then man and woman hiding from what was normal for them. The pattern follows in our day today. We ourselves at one point hid from God. We ourselves probably still at times hide from God, whether it's in our thoughts, whether it's in distraction with this world, whether it's in shame or guilt, we run to other things rather than towards him. Of course, that is the pattern of the unredeemed. That is the pattern of the non-Christian permanently until Christ intervenes. But as Christians, as we'll see, we have no reason to hide. And it goes on in verse 9 to 11, and we see a conversation between God and Adam. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to? Well, in verse 9 to 11, we once again get a taste of the character of the Lord God. We're experiencing more of what it means for him to be this covenant-keeping, faithful God. And his grace shines through in the conversation to Adam, who could have been just cut off who could have been just sent away from the presence of God or completely extinguished, but we see in this passage grace. We see in this conversation God's grace as he disciplines his children. And I never would have thought to turn to Genesis 3 as a picture of what it looks like to discipline children, but I think there is beauty here. There's a beautiful interaction between God the Father, the Creator, and his creation or his children. And unlike the prophets, when he speaks through the prophets in his righteous anger and wrath, he here, in here he doesn't speak in a, a wrathful way. He speaks in a tone of gentleness and questioning. He gives a picture of a tender father coming to a child who is hiding in embarrassment. And it's in this point that we see that God the Creator, now comes God the Redeemer as He seeks the lost. 
his question comes not with condemnation, but certainly with grace, where are you? Where are you? God is the all-knowing God, the all-seeing God. He doesn't need to be told where they are, but he gives this gracious opportunity to Adam and calls him to come forward. He's saying pretty much to Adam, come forward, I know what you have done. Come and show yourself to me, I know where you are. It's a beautiful picture of God pleading with his children to confess, which as we've said before, is agreeing with God. Saying to God what he already knows about us. The image of Adam now covered in a leaf of God's design behind a tree of God's creation in a garden of God's dwelling is an image of a foolish child who is unwilling to repent. A foolish child who has no comprehension of what he is now doing because he is lost in his spiral of sin in his heart. Foolish because he doesn't even realize that he's hiding behind the very things God's crea- God created. He's hiding behind the things that are God's. They are an invisible shelter to God. Adam thinks they're covering him, but God sees them as nothing. They are his to look through. Yet God, in his grace, in his gift, although all-knowing, asks Adam to confess. Where are you, Adam? Of course, we should remember as Christians that God is all-knowing. Psalm 139, the beautiful psalm in verse 2 and then 7 and 8 says, You know when I sit down and when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. And then 7 and 8, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Clearly, Adam is now confused. He has, as Eve, we experienced in the last few verses before, in the deception of Satan, has new ideas in his head. It says their eyes have been opened. They now know good and evil. They are defining good and evil for themselves, and their definition is one of self-protection. So how does Adam respond? I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid. No no admittance of what he has done, but rather states how he feels. I am afraid, which is a good feeling to have before a holy God, by the way. As he stands with the presence of the holy God coming him, now he is open to the realization that he himself is not holy. He is separate from God. Yet rather than coming to a place of confession and openness, admitting to God what God already knows, he focuses on self. He focuses on self-protection. His definition now of good and evil is to protect himself, to cover up, to hide away, to conceal what he has done. But his admittance of nakedness and shame is, of course, revealing. He doesn't need to articulate exactly what he's done because in his confession of fear, nakedness, and shame, he's revealing that these things were not in the garden beforehand. These things are new. 
So we see Adam unwilling to confess, which is really the first step of separation from God. An untruthful relationship with the Father. He can't be honest with him. He can't. He has, he has reason to, he has reason to conceal. He has reason to hide. He needs to speak up and talk, but he cannot any longer because of the sin that is in him. In verse 12 to 13, we see very clearly the unraveling of the relationship between God and man. And it says, man said, the woman whom you gave to me, who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. What we see in the serpent tempting of Eve is that the serpent reversed God's order from creature to woman to man, but God continues in his pattern and doesn't speak to the serpent first or to woman, but turns straight to man. God speaks in the creation order that he made in the, response, in the order of responsibility and he addresses Adam, then Eve, and then the serpent. This was God's creation mandate and it stands even post-fall that God will hold men account and responsible for their way they manage their wife, children, and creation. As we look, we see this infamous response where Adam blames Eve. And it's one that we have heard probably many times where it's the classic response of anything, anyone that has a sinful heart to deflect. But what we need to look past is not just the blaming of Eve. We need to understand where did the blaming of Eve come from? What first we see is Adam instantly blaming Eve, but that comes from a greater root, a greater problem of his new, new understanding of God, his new separation from God. So we see in this famous, infamous response, this tragic, this tragedy of the fall where he undoes the vows that he made to Eve. The vows of, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This beautiful love song of commitment, beautiful vows that says, we are now one flesh. What one of us does, we both do. We cannot be broken. We cannot be separated. And instantly he, asks, he, he says, I, I take that back. I cancel that out. As soon as God is asking him a question. But this comes from a greater problem. This comes from the heart problem he has with God because he doesn't just blame Eve he blames God he says the woman who you gave me so the greater weight here is not that he rejects his covenant with his wife but he rejects the God who formed and fashioned him the God who created and designed him who loves him and gave him all that he has the garden his authority his wife everything he now blames him as the serpent does. He redefines God as the God who isn't good, the God who gives bad things, the God who doesn't give graciously, the God who withholds good things from him. Just as the serpent did to Eve in the garden in his deception, now this has ran through, sin has ran through Adam and Eve, and the response is always a dysfunctional, impossible relationship with God who is holy. 
This is the most tragic effect of the fall. Not that marriage fell apart. Not that he blames his wife, but that he blames God. The worst part, and we'll see this unfold as God separates them out of his dwelling place and puts cherubim, flaming swords, and these daunting characters of cherubim in front of the garden saying, you cannot be in my presence. But right here we see in God's graciousness, allowing man to interact with him, man turns to blame God. Man turns to say it is from you. And we see these effects, the effects of sin, setting man against his dearest companion, his wife, and alienating him from his all-caring creator. So even without the curses that we'll see next week, God deliberately puts curses on the world. Even without the curses that God put on the world, we see now man's default position is self-protection, even over and above a relationship with his holy creator. He didn't keep the garden. He let the serpent in. He didn't keep his wife. He followed her into sin. And now we see, rather than taking on the image of God, he takes on the image of the serpent, the deceiver, the one who twists God's goodness, the one who questions God, blames God, and all in, in, in reality says you are no God at all. One of the most damaging teachings of our time doesn't hold to Genesis 3. And it holds to the fact that what we need more than anything is to, be, is to think more highly of ourselves. It's the teaching of self-esteem. Self we need to be people who think better of ourselves, who say positive, uh, positive thoughts. And this is the same deception that Satan had in the garden. Speaking to Eve, saying, you can be like God. Don't think of yourself as less than God. Don't think of yourself as someone who can't define good and evil. You can be like God. And the same deception runs through our psychology and in a great many churches that what we need is to not think badly of ourselves, not think that our heart is corrupted, but rather think that we are good and like God and naturally can be good. And where this takes us is a neglect of taking responsibility for our sins. If you tell someone long enough that the reason they act the way they do is because of their father or their broken family or their upbringing, they'll start to use that as an excuse. Well, I can do whatever I want because it wasn't my fault that I hit someone, yelled at someone, hated someone. It's because my father wasn't present when I was older, uh, when I was younger. It's because my family was dysfunctional. But as we said at the start, Sin comes from within. Sin starts in our heart. And Jesus says very clearly in Matthew, uh, Mark 7, there is nothing outside a person by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Nothing outside. That means the person that annoys you, that means your parents in their upbringing. That means your experiences as a child. Nothing outside the body can make you do anything. 
It comes from your heart. And Jesus goes on a few verses later and says, So from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Everything comes from within. We are without anyone to blame. And because of our brokenness in our relationship with God, because we have fallen out of relationship with Him, we then turn to blame Him and everyone else for these responses in our life. I did this because of dot, dot, dot. And ultimately, when we're blaming the circumstances of our life, we are blaming God Himself. Whether we know it or not, we're saying, God, you put me in this situation. I was born in poverty. I was born with abusive father. I was born without parents. I was born in whatever. And we blame God, whether knowing or not, whether directly or not, we are still blaming God because we are saying that he causes the actions in our life rather than taking responsibility. So Genesis 3 as we go through the deception of Adam and Eve, as we see the interaction between God, Adam, God, Eve, and now when we go next week, we'll see the interaction between God handing out curses on creation, on woman, on man, and separating them from his dwelling place. The cry of Job, Job 9.33, is the cry of the world. There is no arbiter between us or no mediator between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Speaking to God, he says, there is no mediator who understands man and God. We need someone between us. We need someone to step into this gap that is, is created by sin. We need someone who knows what it is to be God and we need someone who knows what it is to be man. And Job is crying in the midst of a fragile, messed up world. Where is the mediator? And of course, the mediator we long for is Jesus. What we see being taught in Genesis 3 expanded in Romans 5 is original sin, the doctrine of original sin. In Romans 5, it says, we read it at the start, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. What we are seeing is the doctrine of original sin. What that means is that because God, because Adam, sorry, turned from God, because Adam uh, sinned and rebelled from God's law, we follow his image. We spoke about this at the start. Genesis 5 says that God, Adam had a son in his image. His image being sin. His image being a self-defining of good and evil. His image being, I can be like God. David says in, uh, in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The world hates this. The world hates to think that babies are evil. The world, hates to think, the world hates to think that the babies have evil in them. The world wants us to believe that it's through our nurture, through the way we are raised, that we become good or evil. Babies are not innocent. 
Because of Adam and them being created in the likeness of Adam, they have sin within them. We are no longer made directly in the perfect image of God. We now have the image of a rebellious, broken man who continually turns against God. A child doesn't need to be taught to sin. As soon as they work out how to use their body, they're going to sin. But they're probably sinning in their heart if we could just see it. What we must understand as Christians is unless we are born again, we cannot be saved. Our first birth, because of Adam, because of Adam's sin, our first birth was a, bo- a birth of being born wrong. We were born into a fractured relationship with God. We were born with the continued desire to turn from Him and the continued desire to have all those things that Jesus spoke about. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. We don't need to be taught them. They're in us. What keeps us from completely living them out is some discipline that God graciously has in our life. The image of God that is in every man and woman can still be disciplined and some people are disciplined and refrain slightly from sin and others will be sent into a waywardness of uncontrolled sinful actions. But ultimately, we all have the capacity for sexual morality, murder, theft, and adultery, if we were to say that they might be the biggest sins. What we need to understand as Christians is that we believe everyone is born wrong and in need of a new birth. As 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we were born in the image of the man of dust, dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In order to bear the image of the man of heaven, we need repentance and belief we need the holy spirit to open our eyes to the depravity that is in our heart to realize that we have no excuse and no one to blame but what's in our heart that it is there from the moment we are conceived it runs throughout our life and if unchecked would be a wayward mess of selfishness and self-protection as we define good and evil as whatever best serves myself It is only by the Holy Spirit intervening. It's only by the Holy Spirit revealing to us that there is no circumstance in our life. There's no one else to turn to, but only to say, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. Make me white as snow, like David did in his psalm. But through Christ, He is unlike Adam. Christ is the better Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us and Romans 5 tells us. Christ is the better Adam who steps into the place and fulfills the longing of Job that says, where is the mediator who can touch both God and me? And Jesus is him. Being the very imprint of God's nature, And in human form, in the incarnation, he touches both God and man and is faithful. And through his righteous act of dying, many are made righteous, Romans tells us. Because Jesus, who is infinitely worth more than every human being ever created, even if they were all lumped together and put on one side of the scale and Jesus was put on the other, he would outweigh them all for he is uncreated He is self-sufficient, self-existing, 
as we've seen through previous sermons on Genesis, he outweighs them all. And because he was obedient and he died, and instead of passing blame, he took the blame upon himself, blame that was not his, and he reconciles us to the Father by dying in our place. We must be aware that the serpent is still cunning. The serpent may be bound to some extent. He has had lesser power than what he had before Christ's death and resurrection. But he is still deceptive. He is still cunning. He is still lying to God's children. He's still lying to the world. And today we are redeemed from the image of Adam, yet the image of Adam, the flesh, still remains in us to some extent. And we need to be careful and listen to some of Paul's warnings from the Scripture, or one of Paul's warning and from James as well. And he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And James 1, 14 to 15 says... But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. What we need to be aware is Satan is trying to deceive us as he deceived Eve. Although he cannot make us fall completely, we can fall into his trap. As the warning is to the Corinthians, I am concerned that he will lead your thoughts astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We need to be on guard. We need to be willing, ready to protect our mind. As Romans 12 tells us, by the renewing of our minds. We need to renew our mind. We need to fill our mind. Romans 8 says we need to set our mind on the spirit and not on the flesh. Our gracious Father has no condemnation for us and only daily grace. So when we look at Genesis 3 and the interaction between Adam and God and Eve and God, we see them hiding. We have no need to hide. We have no reason to hide because God's wrath has been appeased. We can come confessing, agreeing, We can come agreeing with God about all he says about us because he sees all and knows all and his wrath has been crushed upon Jesus. Our sin has been crushed upon Jesus through his wrath. So when we bear the image of God, we bear the image of Christ. We walk in the new Adam, not the old Adam. Not the one who is fractured in relationship, not the one who hides from God, but the one who is exposed before God because in our exposure before God, we are seen as his son who is spotless and without blemish. We have been reconciled to God as uh, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. We are no longer separated. And as John 1 tells us, we have been invited to be children of God. So rather than being Adam who hides behind a tree when sin creeps into our life, we come openly confessing. We don't conceal ourselves with leaves or trees or other creations. We don't conceal our thoughts with the world and TV and all these other distractions. We 
have the freedom to come in the new Adam, Christ Jesus, our Savior, and present ourselves with everything exposed because we have been forgiven in Christ. Our relationship has been reconciled. And we go forth into a world of unreconciled people, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, as ambassadors pleading with them, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That is our plea. We have been reconciled. We come openly in freedom and we want the world to be reconciled. So we are his ambassadors pleading with them, be reconciled. You no longer need to hide behind whatever you are hiding behind. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus, who by his obedient act of going to the cross, although having no sin in his heart whatsoever, he gives us a new relationship with you, that you can be our father, we can be your children. He opens way for us, Lord, to be washed, washed in his blood, washed in your word. Today we stand justified, those who have repented and believed, those who have new birth. The old Adam has died. The new has come. We're in Christ Jesus who is faithful, faithful completely in thoughts and actions. And Lord, we pray that as a church, we would not hide from you. We would not hear a message of condemnation or guilt or shame. That we would not image Adam by hiding behind trees or covering ourselves with leaves. But Lord, be like Christ who is exposed before you. He was exposed on the cross as he died with our sin upon him and your wrath poured out upon him. And he stands in victory in the resurrection. And Lord, we stand with him. We are in Christ, in his fullness. And we claim everything he has, his righteousness, holiness, his child or sonship. We take that on, Lord. And Lord, let us plead with the world. Let us be ambassadors. Fill us with a confidence in the gospel message that is the power for salvation, that we may plead Be reconciled to God. We no longer need hiding. We no longer need to be in shame. For Lord, there is forgiveness for today and tomorrow and for every day to come because of Christ and Christ alone. We give you praise, Lord Jesus. Amen.